Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35 is our text this morning. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed give us those ears to hear today. For unless you do, Lord, we know that the time that is ahead of us will not be of any profit uh, to us. It will not profit our souls in the way it could if you do not come and open up our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Lord, for those that are dead in their trespasses and sins, we realize that the natural man perceiveth not the things of God, their folly to him. They are spiritually discerned. God, we want to lift up those that are in this position today, asking that you would work miraculously in their hearts to draw them to yourself. I pray that this would be a day of salvation for them, not because of works done by them in righteousness, but according to your own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for your own children, And we pray that you would continue the good work that you have already started in us. We pray for our eyes. We pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we would know the hope to which we have been called, that we would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the gospel in which we stand, which we've received, by which we are being saved. Use the word that we are about to hear today to, pr- to prick those who are comfortable and uh, to comfort those who need comfort. 
Lord, we praise you and give you glory. Use your word for your name's sake, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is it going to cost you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? It will cost you everything. That is the message of this text. It's the main argument of Jesus's message to the multitudes of people who are following after him. The Bible says here that great crowds have assembled. Many people are going along with Jesus as he is making his way to Jerusalem, accompanying him along the way. But that alone shouldn't make us too quick to rejoice. Large numbers of people isn't reason enough to break into song. It does not signal a work of God. Sometimes it is the case that the larger the crowd you have, the easier it is actually to get swept up in the emotion of it all. You find what we call a a mob mentality. That happens in in Christian circles. People become eager to jump on the bandwagon because everyone else is doing it and they don't know in the slightest what they've really signed up for. Jesus's message in this text is a a very, very sobering one. It's one that ought to get the the attention of every self-professing believer today, everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's one that deserves the consideration of everyone who is thinking about what it might mean to follow Christ, every would-be disciple of Jesus Christ. The teaching of this text can be be broken down really into two main points. It's a very straightforward passage. First, Jesus says that following Christ is going to cost you everything. And then secondly, You need to carefully consider that. You need to carefully consider that cost. Enthusiastic support, apart from careful deliberation over the cost of following Jesus, is something to be cautioned against. It's something people need to be warned about. And so the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 14 invites these great crowds of people to actually stop. And to step back for a minute and to think, to think carefully, uh, to think deliberately, rationally about what it means to follow him. And we're going to see over the course of our examination here that he is the one that sets the terms. He's the one that lays out the cost of following him and he hides nothing. He hides nothing from us. This is a statement of full disclosure. And it's a non-negotiable one. The terms here aren't up for debate. So what do we find? We find, first of all, this is a take-all call. A take-all call. Following Christ will cost you everything. And he lays that out on several different fronts for us. First, you, you see it in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. He cannot be my disciple. Now, there are are many who, if they heard an evangelistic approach like this today, would say, now wait on, hang on a minute, Jesus. 
You know, just when things really seem to be going well, just when you are really beginning to, to rally support here, you've got a movement going. And now you're saying this. You're, you're talking about hating family. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. Brothers and sisters, Christ's concern is not to see how many adherents he can gain. It isn't to see how fast he can pump up the numbers. It was never to hurry men into making, quote, decisions for Christ. He doesn't measure things by the size of the crowd. That's not how you gain ministry, gauge ministry success. What does he say? We're going to hear more and more of this in the in the passages to come. In the next chapter, he says, I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner, just one, who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And he's beginning to unfold that theme for us even here. His interest is not in seeing how many he can get to say, Lord, Lord. Or how many, if they were filling out the latest Barna survey, would, would count themselves to be evangelical Christians? He was interested in loves, loyalties, allegiances, affections, the devotions of the heart. He wanted to see hearts that were wholly, unreservedly set on him. Charles Spurgeon says this, Christ's heart longed after the real. He loathed the counterfeit. He panted after the substance. The shadow could not content him. His fan was in his hand with which to thoroughly purge his floor and his ax was laid to the root of the trees to hew down the fruitless. He was anxious to leave a living church like good seed corn in the land as free as possible from all admixture. Now, if you had to point to a single word that arrests your attention in verse 26, surely we would all agree it would have to be that word hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. It sounds so abrasive. It sounds so jarring and even offensive to our ears. And, and it is important that this statement receives some qualification. Jesus has already told us earlier on uh, in, in Luke chapter six that we're to love even our enemies. Love your enemies, do good to those who abuse you. Uh, the, the expression here in verse 26 is a Hebrew figure of speech. It has to do with loving something or some more, someone more than loving something else. It's what explains Jacob's affection for Leah, but not for Rachel, or the Lord's regard for Jacob and not for Esau. So it carries with it this comparative sense in terms of where our affections lie. Applied to our hearts, it gets at this question of who do I love supremely? Who do I love more than anyone else in the world? Who do I love supremely? 
So it is, it is important that the word receive some qualification. But you know, brothers and sisters, sometimes we can, we can so qualify the word of God that we drain it of all of its force. We drain it of all of its meaning and significance. You, you notice here that Christ doesn't feel the need to, to qualify things. It is meant to have that, that jarring effect to our ears. It's meant to shake us. It's meant to have us coming away thinking to ourselves, Does, is, is Jesus really saying what I think he's saying? Is he really saying what I hear him saying? You know, Jesus could have simply said, I, I want you to love me first. I, I want you to put me first in your life. But he doesn't do that. He, he does call us to put him first, but he doesn't say that. That's not the way that he frames things. He doesn't speak in generalities. He drills down to specifics and he, he presses this home, quite literally speaking to the particularities of where our fealty and our love is found. Where does he begin? He begins with the members of our own household. He makes specific application and he brings this to bear on the relationships that are nearest and dearest to us, our own family. For most of us, these are the ties, the deepest ties we typically have in this life, that with mother and father and wife and husband and children and brothers and sisters. And now Jesus comes along and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate these, he cannot be my disciple. It might be helpful for us to set this in the context of first century Jewish life. In that context, everyone understood that open proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord virtually guaranteed rejection by your family. It meant social ostracism. It was to cut across the grain of the whole culture at large. And everyone knew that. It meant a collision, often with members of your own household. You can think of many Muslim contexts in the world today. And all of this would have been hanging over someone contemplating their submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean in terms of Christ having the place of supremacy in your life? No matter who you are, what your family is like, whether they support or reject the cause of Christ, we can say that Christ is calling us to so love him, to esteem him so highly, so supremely, that our love for family pales in comparison. He says it this way in Matthew 10 and verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ's mantra to disciples and would-be disciples is not family first. It's me first. It's Christ first. He comes in the first place. To love anything more than the Lord Jesus Christ 
is to hate Christ. It is to despise him. It is to despise the only one worthy to sit in the place of supremacy. And that way we can see a a close parallel to the passage that we looked at last week where the cares and riches and pleasures of life took precedence over the things of God. You remember for those who were invited to that banqueting feast, something ultimately speaking was more important for those that were invited to come. Well, here again, the incarnate word comes and he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He comes to depose all rival loves. He comes to to unseat all competition for the place of preeminence in our hearts. And that includes family. It includes your family. There's a vivid illustration of this uh, during the, the golden calf episode. Christ may have even had this in in mind as he talks about the disciples' relationship to him vis-a-vis their relationship with their family. You remember how Moses was up on the mountain receiving the two tablets of the testimony. Uh, Meanwhile, the people are down below and they are making this golden calf. Moses comes down, uh, his anger burning hot within him, and he sees the false worship. He lays eyes on, on the, the idolatry that is, that is going on there. And, and he stands in, in the gate of the camp and he says this, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Bible says there that all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Levi alone, out of all of the other tribes, came and they stood on Yahweh's side in that day. When that call by Moses was issued, Levi alone stepped away from their kinsmen and said, we have a greater love. We have a greater allegiance. We have a greater fealty. Now, over in Deuteronomy in chapter 33, Moses, he's he's now at the end of his life. He pronounces a blessing over each of the tribes of Israel And when he gets to to Levi, you find much of the the benediction that he pronounces over that tribe wrapped up in their love for and fidelity to the Lord God over against even their own family. And this is what it says there, Deuteronomy 33 and verse nine. And of Levi, he said, Moses said, give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one whom you tested at Massa." with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. That is Luke chapter 14 and verse 26 in action. That, dear ones, is the cost of discipleship in action. That is what the Lord is calling each of us to, to love him supremely over and above all other things, to love him more than every other person in the world. Who do you love? Who do you love the most in the world today? Life in Christ 
devotion to him, interest in the kingdom of God, all these things relativize the significance of every other relationship that we have in the world. I want to be sure to say to you today that Jesus is not telling us to carry out these things if you want to get into the kingdom of God. He is not giving his listeners a set of prerequisites, a list of requirements that says, well, get back to me when you've got these things done, when you've got these things in order, and then you can be my disciple. He is not telling us how you can get saved. An interest in the kingdom of God comes by way of faith. It comes by the the unmerited grace of God found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. These are not meritorious works that Christ is spelling out for his disciples. You remember who has been invited to the table in the previous scene. It's the, the crippled, the poor, the blind, the lame. They did not buy their way in. They did not do anything to uh, purchase a seat at the table. But brothers and sisters, that doesn't take away from the fact that there is a cost associated with new life in Christ. The force of the argument Christ is making here is that unless one is walking in obedience to the cost of of discipleship, to to these commands, if your heart is not set wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ as the object of your faith, hope, love, commitment, and devotion, you have not yet risen to the standard of discipleship that he requires. We can put it this way. Salvation is free and it will cost you everything. Salvation is free and it will cost you everything. We are justified freely by his grace and the call to follow me demands our all. It demands everything. This is a a stunning, convicting series of exhortations that challenges all of us to to take stock of our lives to consider the degree to which our lives accord uh, with the standard to which Christ is calling us. Now, beloved, we've only just begun. Christ goes on and and he, he ups the ante even further, continuing in verse 26. He says, yes, and even his own life. You see, there, there is a, a concern and a love that runs deeper in our hearts than even that of family. And it's this, it's love for self. None of you had to be taught to love yourself. Paul says in Ephesians 5 and verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh. No one. But nourishes it and cherishes it. We come out of the womb loving ourselves. Now, what does the cost of discipleship entail? Well, it means that that love of self, love of ease, indulgence in the passions of the flesh, love of the world, all of these things must go to die. It means that having been saved by the grace of God, we must go on. We must go on to be trained to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It means mortifying the flesh. It means that whenever I, 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 I look at my life and I discover that my ambitions, my loves, my aims, my pursuits in life, they, they run contrary to the glory of Christ and the honor of Christ's name, I have to turn away from those things. I have to lay them down. I have to begin to walk again in repentance and in faith. Christ's purposes, Christ's glory, they are now my purpose. They are now my aim in life, not my own. When the old man wants to to rise up and I am tempted to live for myself or I am tempted to regard pleasure or comfort or the passions of the flesh to be my God, I remember Christ's words. John chapter 12, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Paul captured the spirit of Christ's call to hate, yes, even one's own life when he said this, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Would that we could all say that. Would that we could all say that sincerely, honestly, from the heart, by the grace of God, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to me. How much value do we assign to our lives? It's a lot, isn't it? We assign so much value to our lives and God is calling us here to, to hate even our own lives that we might gain our life in Christ. It's said of the church triumphant in the book of Revelation, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. There is something, someone that they regarded Uh, more precious than even their own lives. Everything that we're saying here, hating one's life, uh, loving not your life, even to death, that's just another way of talking about repentance, brothers and sisters. What does repentance look like? Well, it involves repenting of selfish, worldly ambitions. It, It means repenting of all of those aims to exalt self, to make self Number one, it means repenting of the life that I uh, lived apart from Christ, turning my, my back on everything that is in competition with Jesus Christ. That's hating my life. Now, the world is going to call you crazy for that. It sounds so radical. It sounds so puritanical. But Christ is the one that sets the terms. And he's worthy of it, isn't he? Isn't he? He's worthy of it all. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He is worthy of it all. In verse 27, we read this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, if you've been 
in church for any length of time, you know that the language here is so much a part of our vernacular. In fact, this is true even outside of the church. This is true outside of even the Christian world. Uh, it's almost impossible for us to get a sense of just how this must, must have chafed against the hearts of Jesus's original audience here. When he talked about taking up a cross, we hear even unbelievers today referring to to some relatively uh, trivial, insignificant child, saying, well, I guess this is just my cross to bear. But in the Roman world, to think of bearing a cross was to, to identify oneself as being placed under a sentence of death. People who bore a cross were those who were going to the outskirts of town to suffer, and to die. They were on a march of shame, hated and despised in the eyes of the world. They were destined to have nails driven through their hands and their feet and to hang for hours and even days, suffering the most agonizing form of death imaginable. Well, Jesus takes up this image knowing full well his appointed end, knowing that he is headed to Jerusalem to die at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would be crucified between two thieves to give up his life as a ransom for many. He takes up this image and he calls on his disciples, and that includes you and I, to willingly bear the shame and hatred and losses and sufferings that come with following him. Church, this is a call to die. It is a call to inscribe on the banner of your life, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Anyone who does not do that, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. He echoes the refrain a second time. Beloved, Jesus offers to us no convenient way to take up Christianity. He posits no casual approach to a life of discipleship. Instead, he calls us to identify by faith with a crucified Savior and to steal ourselves by God's grace for what will come, knowing that it has been granted you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Brothers and sisters, do you desire that? Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Paul said that he yearned to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is where the modern church has so abjectly failed in the proclamation of the gospel. Walk down the aisle, say a prayer, and you're good, is what they say. Go to church on Sundays. If you're really devoted, go on Wednesday nights. What does Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and die. The church has for decades softened the demands that accompany the grace of the gospel, preaching instead a cheap grace, easy believism. 
They preach a gospel that requires nothing of you, that changes nothing in you, that makes no demands of you, and that doesn't cost you anything. You just tack on Jesus to the periphery of your life, and all the while, souls are being led down the broad road of destruction, deceiving themselves into thinking that they're being saved. Salvation is free, and it will cost you everything. Now, having stated the principle outright, Jesus goes on to give us two illustrations. Let me direct your attention to verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So now you know the cost. You know what the cost is. You know what following me entails and what it will require. Now you should sit down and you you should carefully consider the cost. Have you ever undertaken some major endeavor in which you haven't taken into view what it's going to cost before you get underway, before you move forward? Well, The answer is taken for granted in the text. Of course not. Which of you does not first sit down and count the cost? No one does this. So you're looking to add extra security to your property and you you think to yourself, well, what's needed is a watchtower here. That's what we need. How are you going to go about construction? The wise man takes time and he, he sits down He makes a careful assessment of things. He calculates the cost. He he considers all of the the various forms of sacrifice that it's going to require financially, uh, labor costs. That's what biblical discipleship entails. If this is true in worldly endeavors, in worldly enterprises, how much more ought the same kind of care and attention be given over to eternal affairs? Following Jesus is not something to be undertaken casually. What happens if you do that? What happens if you rush hastily into things? What happens if you don't possess the kind of uh, sobriety Jesus is calling for? A mind that is well aware of the cost that lies ahead. You're going to have an unfinished project. You're going to have a half-built structure and it's going to stand as a monument to your impulsiveness, your lack of preparedness. There are half-finished ancient towers uh, all over the ancient world uh, still to this day that are known as so-and-so's folly. Something that was started without considering The cost. Following Jesus is not something to be done without considering the cost. Don't find yourself to be a Hymenaeus or an Alexander who, while it looked like they had begun well, they went on to make a shipwreck of their faith. You see the same thing in verse 31. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here you've got a situation where a king is facing another uh, 
king who has twice as many troops as he does. So what is he to do? How is he going to be able to face him? Is it better to try to come to terms of peace before he strikes? What should the strategy be? The point is that he considers the cost. So also must Christ's disciples carefully assess what it will require to follow him. Now, brethren, Jesus's purpose here is not to discourage you. It is not to so demoralize you that you leave off from following him. That you leave off entirely from following him. That is not his purpose. His purpose here is to discourage faint-hearted discipleship. To warn us away from rushing hastily into a kind of half-hearted, lackluster pursuit of a king who demands and is worthy of our all. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You hear it now for a third time. Listen to how one man, the Apostle Paul, applied this to his life in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We would do well today to make a list of our own, to consider carefully, soberly, what we must today renounce in order to be Christ's disciple. Beloved, what claims of status, background, reputation, renown, accomplishments, resources, possessions, points of pride, self-righteousness, whatever it might be, what must be renounced if you would follow him? The section concludes with Jesus saying, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Literally here it says, if salt becomes foolish, pure salt can't lose its saltiness. But in the ancient Near East, if you took salt from the Dead Sea, for example, it would have all kinds of other minerals mixed into it. And so it was possible for the salt uh, to leach away, leaving behind something that looked like salt, but didn't have any real saltiness to it. The main distinctive, in other words, the, the thing that that substance is known for and used for is gone. And so what does Jesus say? It's, it's worthless. 
And that's what Jesus is saying here about these features of genuine Christian discipleship. If what he says is not the case, if these characteristics are not in place in our lives, if one doesn't love Jesus more than family, if one doesn't love Jesus more than self, if you don't renounce all that you have, not only can you not be Christ's disciple, but Jesus says you're of no use as a disciple. Why? Because your heart's divided. Something else is in the place of supremacy. Your interests are divided. It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Now, the good news, the, the positive side of this, and this is implicit in the text, is that Christ has a purpose for those in the world that are his. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for his disciples. He's looking for, for hearts that are wholly his, for men and women and boys and girls that belong wholly, solely, unreservedly to him. And if we submit ourselves to him without reservation, he will make us useful. He will make us useful in his hands. The name of our Savior will be glorified and we will be glorified with him. We will not be thrown away. We'll be raised with him. Following Christ will cost you everything, but you will also gain everything. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, our gracious God, Lord, again, we pray that you would impress this word upon our hearts today. Lord, we, we confess to you that our hearts are in many ways divided. Lord, we do not give you the, the supreme affection and devotion that you deserve. We find ourselves living for self, loving ourselves. Lord, we, we find ourselves looking for an easy way to follow you and to still hang on to our own lives, to our own ambitions and pursuits. God, we confess we, we're often more concerned with knowing the approval of our family and our friends and those around us than we are concerned with knowing your approval. And we ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would cleanse and forgive us, O oh God. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy that we find in Christ. Thank you for his cross. Thank you that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Lord, I, I pray that that response, that response of, of holiness and devotion and service to the, to the gracious provision that he has made would be evident in us. That it would be evident in the way we live our lives, that you would magnify your name through us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.